There were seven guitars in our house back then, and an eighth was on the way, the Waterloo. And then a friend of mine he told me he was suddenly in the middle of a divorce. It wasn't a total surprise, but it wasn't his doing either. It was all just happening, and his two kids were mixed up in it. At least they were teenagers. But there he was, finding a place to rent that was not too far away from them. I was going back to New York on business, and I'd be picking up the Waterloo. So I wrote to him, and I said, Hey, buddy, right now, you need a guitar in your life, and I've got one to spare. A guitar wants to be played, and this one, it's just been in the case for too long. I'm bringing you my Epiphone. It was a very inexpensive copy of a famous Gibson but even a pale reflection of that guitar makes big, beautiful sounds. A few weeks later, jet-lagged in New York, I walked it to his office in Midtown. He came downstairs and met me in this great big steel and glass lobby, not looking like a defeated man, no questions hanging over him. We spoke briefly as we were going to have dinner in a day or two. But today was guitar delivery day, and he just turned on his boots with that case thumping against his leg, shoulders thrown back. And I just imagined him strolling through the office, the mysterious rock star, as people whispered about him. I'm Marco, and this is Songbird. This is our first Liner Notes episode, and while there's no song to pick apart this time, there are still plenty of mysteries to unravel. Let's just work our way through the CD cover and the insides. And by the way, we just might be doing a short vinyl run, so why not pretend that these are LP liner notes. Let's start with our cover. A man who damn sure looks like me is sitting in a chair holding a guitar that looks just like my hundred-year-old parlor guitar, but he has no face, no head, and there's a black hat hanging in the right place like it's on top of that head, the one that's not there. He's in an empty room, and there's a lot of old wood and in the back, there's a small window that looks just like a prison one, like a Mexican jail or something. And there's some pale blue sky and some clouds way, way back there. This was not my original plan for the cover. I'd come across this wonderful Russian photographer. I'm going to try to say her name right. Lara Vichujanina. Don't worry, she'll be in the show notes. There's no way I'm going to try to make you spell that. She does these dioramas with Barbie and Ken dolls, but they're in old Soviet rooms, and it's always recreating some caught Eastern European moment, but with these American dolls. And I wanted her to do a doll that looked like me, sitting on a bench with a guitar, maybe alone in some park. It could be autumn, with a lot of dry leaves around. And I wrote to her, 
And she replied that this was just way back when I came across her work and I hadn't even started recording the album yet. So it was like two or three years later that I wrote back to her saying, I think I'm ready to talk. And I just kind of didn't hear from her for a while. And at that time, I also saw a lot of people using figurines in their album covers. You know, it happens. So it seemed like don't run towards that idea. And I just thought, let's do an experiment. So I had my daughter Eve take a picture of me in the chair that I'm sitting on right now in our living room. And then I built this room out of wood textures and I cut the head out in various VizFX software. I mostly use After Effects and Photoshop. And four hours later, there was the cover staring back at me, the man with no face. There's that lyric in track seven, way up there, when he says, just take back my face and give it to a better man. And I don't know, I felt like it really came home on this one. And you know, if your first reaction when you see this was, you know, this kind of reminds me of Magritte, I would say, good, you've already got a feeling for the album. You're not going to be expecting any auto-tune or some, you know, fancy beats or anything. Sometimes levering expectations is a good thing. Actually, no, it's always a good thing. And of course, a few months later, Lara finally wrote back to me and, you know, I just told her what had happened. So we just decided we're going to do something else down the road. It's funny how some experiments just work out sometimes. On the back, we have a detail shot of a Dobro, the Regal, that I played on track three, Long Tall Man. And then there's some obvious text, but most important, mastered by Hans Decline and copyright Whistlepig Records. I mentioned Hans Decline already, I think it was in episode two, but in case you didn't catch that one. When the recording and mixing is done, we send these stereo files, this mix down, to a mastering person. And they're normally called mastering engineers. I personally would like to call them mastering artists. There's definitely a lot of technology that's involved in what they do, but it is their ears. It's their sensibilities. It's this decision to make these final tweaks and cleanups, and they kind of tighten things up, and they bring clarity, and I mean all capital letters, clarity to what you have done. They bring an outside perspective about how big the bass should be, or how rough or harsh something should be, and that's mastering. And Hans is basically a legend. He works with everyone from U2 to Lisa Loeb to the Pixies. I mean, he even does amazing children's music. And because I was smart enough to get him on board, he mastered this album too. Whistlepig Records is run by the one and only Bunky Hunt, based in Detroit, with an emphasis on roots and Americana artists it's a small label with a pretty diverse roster. I think Bunky just finds music that speaks to him, and he just does all he can to bring that music to people's ears. I could say the exact same thing about Sam Phillips and Sun Records. Now, some of the music is on the more traditional side, and you might even say it's radio-friendly, and some isn't. It's a complete mix. But the constant, 
the thing that every artist on this label shares is that the songs are so solid. At the end of the day, yeah, there's these great Detroit session musicians that play on them. They're awesome. The mix is big. The sound is warm. But the songs are the bedrock. And I'm just so happy to have found a home there. Now we go to the inside liner notes. There's a list of who played what, and as you already know, I wrote and I recorded this beast. I played all the instruments, except for my daughter Eve, who graciously stepped in with those guest vocals on track six, Sebastopol. Here's an idea of the instruments. Vocals, six and 12 string acoustic guitars, electric guitars, dobro, banjola, saxophone, harmonica, cloud chamber bowls, calliope, pump organ, foot stomps. Let's listen to some of these all by themselves and really get an idea of why they were my tool of choice. Because a guitar and my voice, they kind of live in about the same space on the audio spectrum. I'm a baritone, and a lot of the guitar parts on these songs are on the lower strings, and they're very dark sounding. And we're kind of fighting for the exact same frequencies. And that's one reason I put a capo on sometimes to get the guitar higher and my voice lower so that they could coexist better. And then there's all those open tuning songs. Now, open tunings are always lower than standard tuning. So they go deeper than my voice. And then that leaves a lot of room on the high end for other instruments to step in, like a harmonica. All right. Let's get some guitars out of their cases and make a mess in the living room. We start with the Waterloo WL14. Now we're in standard tuning. I'm going to play an A minor, and then I'm just going to noodle around a little bit. Next, we're going to play the exact same A minor chord, but on the 100-year-old parlor guitar, it has the same shape, build, size, the bracing inside it. It has the exact same guts as the Waterloo. I even have the exact same strings on them. But this is the guitar I write every song on, and you're going to see how different they sound and what they have in common.
All right, so here's the 12 string. This is here. That's a lot of guitar. That's, how am I gonna sing over all that? It's not, it's not gonna happen. So I used it very sparingly and I backed it off, but I did this long, I would play like, like this. One, two, All right, here's the dobro or the resonator. It's the, it's that all metal body with the giant kind of metal plate in there. And in the middle of the plate, there's something called a biscuit and the strings run across that biscuit and that amplifies the sound. Now some of these have a square neck and those are the ones you play in your lap. This is a round neck, so Play it just like a guitar, but it's very unwieldy. <laughs> Little goes a long way. slide like a metal slide on my hand not my fingers different colors to paint with, and each of them has their sweet spot. And they also play really well together. And now we get to the cloud chamber bowls. These are samples because the real ones are in a museum. They were made, well, they're invented? No, they were made by Harry Parch. He's a fascinating and revolutionary composer, born in 1901, and he lived till 1974. Now, he went through all sorts of formal training, but he basically became frustrated by the limitations of Western scales, 
or the 12-note scale. And he ended up having to build or adapt instruments that would play in the modes or the keys that he wanted to write for. Now, some of these instruments had 29 notes or intervals within an octave or in a scale. And some had 43 notes within an octave or a scale. So the difference between the notes was not big, like in a 12-note scale. They were small, and the notes were right next to each other. Some call this microtonal. If you listen to certain Indian and Arabic instruments, the best example is an oud, which is a direct ancestor of the modern acoustic guitar. Ouds do not follow 12-note scales. They have flat flats and sharp sharps which might sound sour to the innocent ear, like the instrument's just out of tune. But when you hear this in context, it all falls into place. Notes get bent sometimes in Eastern music, in blues music, and it's just all about what your ears are ready to hear. Many of Parch's instruments were percussive. For example, giant marimbas. Think like a great big wooden xylophone. He modified organs, and he created these cloud chamber bowls. They're a set of 12-gallon, that's 45-liter, 16-inch diameter Pyrex bowls. They were cut from giant water coolers, and they're just suspended in the frame. Think of that next time you're standing by a water cooler. You can hit them with soft mallets, or you can run a bow across them. And nothing sounds like them. How did I ever hear about Harry Parch? Well, back in the day in New York, pre-internet, I was surrounded by some pretty eccentric people. A lot of them were older than me, and they just loved to have a beer and share knowledge. And it wasn't like a lecture. It was more like all the secrets were just bottled up in them, and they just, they had so much excitement about all this rare stuff. And they just loved to share it. My friend Mark McKenna, he got me into Hal Wilner, a musician and producer who unfortunately died last year, thanks to COVID. Most people know him as the music supervisor for SNL, but I knew him as this very inspired, how do you explain his work? He would take a composer like Nino Rota or Charles Mingus, or he would take the music from old Disney films and he would reinterpret them, yet somehow speak to the heart of that music and with the deepest respect. So these were not just like, weird, interesting covers of these songs. No, this was profound. It's like a sonic adventure from start to end of an album. And you put that album on, there were no singles. And he would bring in these incredible musicians and create a collage of of sounds and tracks. And he would just make a world. It was a fascinating place he just wanted to listen to over and over again. Hal was as curious and brave and fearless as they come. Stay Awake is the Disney album, and Tom Waits sings Hi-Ho on it, for example. And this is before Bone Machine. 
Now, that was the first one of his that I heard. But it was the Mingus album, Weird Nightmare. That was the light switch going on. Hal somehow got to use all of these Harry Parch instruments on it. And they just sound otherworldly. There is dissonance and there's harmony. And that's what our ears like to hear. It's what we understand from the moment we hear lullabies. But it's also kind of like only knowing what sweet and sour are without ever tasting salty or spicy or umami. Our sonic palettes are limited until someone like Parch blows the doors off. Wilner just took all of these different colors and he painted with them. Colors we could never have imagined. And eventually, I had the chance to put some cloud chamber bowls on this album. And I just did my best to write songs that deserved them. And I'll just put links to all this in the show notes. The best thing about being a young musician in New York who knew who Harry Parch was, and sometimes I worked as a theater carpenter and a welder, so my friend Duncan became the technical director for this crazy performance art thing called Blue Man Group. I was a phone call away, and actually I even lived just a few blocks away. So, of course, I found myself helping to maintain their instruments that were percussive inventions directly inspired by Harry Parch, Theirs were kind of covered in bananas, and I don't know, there was a lot of junk on them. But their show is a glorious mess every single time. And, you know, the people in the band that played live, they all made their own instruments. And they made guitars out of two-by-fours. They put electric drills inside them. They were just no bad ideas. So, of course, I found myself in the basement talking with Chris and Matt and Phil, and they're all covered in blue paint. And they're talking about instruments that they'd love to have, some new inventions. I started by helping on these motorized didgeridoos that they played on The Tonight Show. And then I set about creating tunable metal grinders. And I tried to put a a variable power supply in them and a hinge so that you could lower the grinder onto a piece of steel. And there was lots of sparks and all kinds of good sounds and stuff happening. And you could kind of pound on them. One afternoon before their show, in their ruckus room, yeah, we all want a ruckus room, everyone put on safety goggles, and I did a demo. It was a perfect life moment. And they were talking about how fun it would be to hide some metal plate in Phil's face costume and kind of like grind on the top of his head. And I think the safety issues became very clear very quickly. And it's kind of hysterical that we even got that far. But sometimes the destination is not the end. It's just the road you travel. So, yeah, cloud chamber bowls are the obvious result of that long, twisted life equation. One of my favorite expressions is three chords and the truth. Now, for most people, those three chords are something like C and F and D. But what if those three chords are microtonal? What if you need to play them on a modified bass marimba because that is the sound banging around in your special little head? We live in very conservative times. Even though we keep hearing that anything is possible, 
if you take a good hard look at what gets heard by millions, what plays on the radio, or what gets recommended over and over again on Spotify or iTunes, it's C and F and D. And there's probably some auto-tune in there too. Now, for better or for worse, we musicians are stuck with these delivery mechanisms, these platforms. The digital version of standing on the corner and playing your songs as people pass by, hoping someone notices. And sure, we could say no, no fucking way. And we could only put our music on Bandcamp, where the algorithms are not in charge. And it that works for a lot of musicians. But it's maddening for all of us. It's the elephant in the room, and it's the devil we know. Now, maybe I personally want to use these other sounds as my three chords. And maybe I'm trying to do a little bit of a protest from inside the walls. As for the truth, well, you either have it or you don't. Now, who wants to hear the truth? Well, it's a completely different question. Here's something Dostoevsky said. Nothing in this world is harder than speaking the truth. Nothing easier than flattery. All right, songbirds. I hope this liner notes format is as interesting as the behind the song one. You know, we got a brand spanking new website now with much better subscribe functions. There's a really easy way to leave a review if you have the mood. And there's a contact form. And I would love, love, love to get your thoughts. Tell me what bores you and what thrills you. What I need to explain better or what I need to explain less. These episodes are all just messages in bottles that I toss out every week. Don't be shy. And if your English is terrible, trust me, it's way better than my Russian. This is the part at the end where I tell listeners where you can find us. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, Overcast, Castro, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Pocket Casts, CastBox, Podchaser, TuneIn, Deezer, Spreaker, Pandora, Podcast Addict, Ghana, Savin. It's like the podcast Santa's Reindeers. Or you can just go to songbirdpodcast.com. That's the only place the show notes are. If you'd like to listen to or buy Heaven Get Behind Me, we're available on Bandcamp, Amazon, Spotify, iTunes. All you have to do is search for Martin Ruby, that's the band name, or Heaven Get Behind Me, and you'll find us. Let's give a shout out to Bunky Hunt of Whistlepig Records, all the way over in Detroit. Next time on Songbird, that horsehead story we never got to, the sea monster story, and how I married a mermaid. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.